Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a program about New York. It's a weekly show about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, you know, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy, New York neighborhood special. On some shows, like tonight's, we host an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not about one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in New York, about half of them, believe it or not. We've explored the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities. We've talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. We've looked at the history of punk and opera. Those were separate shows, by the way. We've looked at our public library systems, the subway, some of our greatest train stations, and even some of our bridges. Yes, everyone, in New York, we even have great bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're doing one of those special shows. We're going to focus on the topic of philanthropy, not just charity, but philanthropy specifically. And we're going to do it New York style. What's the history of philanthropy in New York? And also, what is some of the current trends in philanthropy? And why do people who are philanthropists actually do what they do? My first guest is Azra Dowd. She's an architectural historian, uh, and she focuses on the modern period. Her research examines how the United States political relations with parts of the non-West have impacted built environments, both here in the U.S. and abroad. In particular, Azra investigates philanthropy, religion, and empires as important determinants of these international relationships and environments. Azra completed her PhD in 2018 from MIT's Aga Khan program for Islamic architecture and the history, theory, and criticism of architecture and art program. Her dissertation is entitled Building Protestant Modernism, John D. Rockefeller Jr. and the Architecture of an American Internationalism, the years focused are 1919 to 39. Prior to her PhD, Azra was trained as an architect. Her teaching, research, and architectural careers have spanned Texas, New York City, Boston, and Karachi. Karachi's in Pakistan. She currently holds the Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Curatorial Fellowship at the Museum of the City of New York. And we extend a hearty welcome to Azra Nag. Uh, Azra, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Um, as this is a program about New York, I like to ask people uh, where they're originally from. And if they aren't from New York, what brought them to our amazing city? You're obviously not from New York originally and nor from the United States. When did you first visit the city? I first visited in 2000. Um, and at the time, I was an undergraduate student in Austin in Texas. And I moved to New York City um, a year later in 2001. You first studied architecture. When did you decide that you wanted to make the focus of your career the study of the history of architecture instead of uh, designing buildings yourself and living spaces and, and office buildings? Yeah, um, so I can tell you the exact year. The year was 2007. And I decided that I w wanted to make this transition and I started looking at graduate programs for that. Um, and, you know, I really enjoyed my career as an architect. I worked for a small firm in lower Manhattan and we did these really interesting small scale um, residential projects at the time and some cultural institutions. Um, but one of the things that I became really interested in, it was not just sort of how we put these projects together in terms of material and construction, but also um, broadly speaking in terms of architecture, the built environment, how, um, these things are determined by where the money comes from. Uh, they're determined by politics. They're determined by culture, by, um, by social cultural issues, and so on. And so that's really what got me interested in architectural history. What was it that had you choose MIT to earn your PhD? 
Yeah, so I, um, you know, I first went to MIT um, to pursue a master's in architectural history. And at the time, I had no intention of doing a PhD. And then the PhD came later. And the reason why I picked MIT for both is because um, MIT is one of the top programs in the history theory and criticism of architecture. And I don't, I'm sorry, I don't recall the exact ranking, but it's it's up there. Um, and so it was you know, a logical choice for that reason, but also the MIT architecture department had within it this program called the Aga Khan Program for Islamic Architecture. And I was particularly interested in that. Well, the topic of your dissertation sort of uh, is very appropriate to the topic that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, I want to ask you, what had you choose to research and write about John D. Rockefeller Jr.? But I want to let our listeners know, most of them have probably know who John D. Rockefeller was. He founded Standard Oil and was purported to be the richest man in America at the turn of the 20th century. His son, John D. Jr., got involved in other business ventures distinct from his father's including the creation and construction of Rockefeller Center, of which we are eternally grateful that we have in New York. I love Rockefeller Center. And he also became a philanthropist in his own right. What was it that had you become interested in, in, in researching and writing about, about him? Yeah, so I'll give you sort of a long answer. Um, and you can cut me off if we're running out of time. But um, I basically, um, I became aware of a project that he had proposed for um, you know the area we now call the Middle East back in the 1920s. And he proposed and built many projects there, but this particular project, um, it was in Egypt, it was rejected by the Egyptian government. Um, and I had read an article about this and I became interested and I wanted to do further research. And so I thought originally that I could find my answers by, you know, as to why this project was proposed and the thinking behind it by looking at the Egyptologist who had proposed the project. Um, and then I thought maybe it's the architect that has the answer. And then eventually I realized that it's the philanthropist. So sort of tracing the money that really tells you why this project was proposed in the first place and what the thinking behind it was, the ideology and so on. And so that's really how I became interested in him as a figure. Um, and then I was, you know, in the archives researching this project and I became aware of kind of the larger scope of his philanthropy at the time. So he was doing um, numerous, like this whole constellation of projects around the world. Um, and I wanted to know why, basically, what was behind that. Well, we'll talk about some of his projects in New York a little bit later in the, in the program. Um, when did you start your fellowship at the Museum of the City of New York? I started in September in uh, 2020, last year. Mm -hmm. and, and what kind of curatorial work are you engaged in at the museum? They do so much. I mean, the, yeah. the, the subject uh, ranges that they have are so vast. What is it that you work on at the museum specifically? Um, I've been doing a lot of sort of very um, uh, new things for me um, and very interesting things. So I'll give you one example. Um, the museum in December opened a show called New York Response. And it's about the first six months of the pandemic in the city and um, the people's response to that. And at the same time, the exhibition is looking at the social justice movements in New York and in the U.S., New York specifically. And so um, I've been I was part of the larger curatorial team on that. And that exhibition is um, currently on display. Mm. Well, that brings us to the topic of the program, philanthropy. Um, before we get into philanthropy in New York, Azra, I'd like to talk about philanthropy in general. How does philanthropy differ from, from charity? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So um, philanthropy, you know, is, uh, it comes from this Greek, this ancient Greek term that um, technically means, you know, for the love of mankind or the love of man, or humans specifically, um, uh, more generally. And um, it um, is often, you know, we think of it interchangeably, as you're saying, with charity, right? But the two things are different. And, um, you know, combined, they have this history and this span, you know, all cultures and geographies, right? But in sort of different ways in each case. But um, modern philanthropy, so the type that involves, um, you know, foundations with massive resources, for example, that kind of philanthropy really comes about at the turn of the 20th century. And it emerges um, in the United States and, and actually in New York City. New York City is a really big part of the story. 
And this philanthropy is different from what was happening before, before the Civil War specifically. So um, what was happening before the Civil War, you could think about it as being more rightly termed as charity. And the difference is that, you know, charity, when I think about it, was more um, at the time in the mid-19th century, it was more about, you know, charitable Christian giving. So it had a religious impulse to it. Um, the money that was being given was, um, you, you didn't have, you know, large sums of money being donated by an individual or a foundation. You didn't even have foundations. And um, it, a lot of this money was, you know, it was very sort of fragmented giving. So it, so it was for the alleviation of um, if someone, if there was a poor person or a poor family, so it was the alleviation of poverty in that instance, or, you know, helping someone who's hungry, et cetera. So it was like very kind of small scale and um, limited in that way. When bigger sums of money were involved at the time, because of U.S. law, um, they had to be dedicated to very specific purposes. And when so did that come about in the United States? When, when, when would um, uh, I'm assuming uh, you're referring to tax law? When would, when would have the law? When would the laws have been instituted that would have facilitated the, the establishment of 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 these charitable foundations? Um, so actually, the, the the money that I was talking about when there's bigger money, that's actually before the tax incentive. And I was just going to say that that was dedicated to very specific purposes. But the open-ended philanthropy that we think of as modern philanthropy, that comes about at the turn of the 20th century. And the tax laws that you're referring to, they happen um, in the early 1900s. So I think it was like maybe around 1911, 1913. I'm not sure of the exact date, but around that time. And did that have to do with uh, inheritance taxes mostly? Um, so I think inheritance has been uh, in some way part of the law, so even before this moment. But what happens um, specifically at the turn of the 20th century is that you have these really massive fortunes being accumulated um, in the U.S., but also specifically in New York City. And the individuals that are involved are hoping to are wanting to use this money. They've, they've, they turn to philanthropy a little bit later, but they eventually would like to use this money for sort of, you know, these large causes and they want it to be open ended. Um, so that's the way in which modern scientific philanthropy comes into being. And the tax laws give um, certain tax breaks to individuals and um, foundations who are leaving money behind. But it's not um, it's more complicated and detailed than that. So not everyone gets the same kind of tax break, but you do get tax breaks. And that spurs a lot of giving in the United States. Oh, okay. Astra, we're going to take a break in a minute, but I wanted to ask you, what were some of the first big and notable foundations in the United States that got established? Yeah. Um, should I answer now or after the break? Um, let's take a break. I love it. My guests is our... Uh... Uh, the ones who are saying, let's take a break. We'll, we're we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Azra Dowd and the topic of philanthropy in New York City. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. 
am Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So that's seven o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Sorry about that. I thought I was unmuted. Uh, We're back and you're back to Rediscovering New York and our episode about philanthropy in New York style. My first guest is Azra Dowd. She's the Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Curatorial Fellowship. I'm sorry, she holds the Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Curatorial Fellowship at the Museum of the City of New York, and we welcome her to Rediscovering New York. Azra, before we went to break, uh, I was going to ask you about what were some of the first big and notable foundations in the United States. What, what were some of them? Yeah, um, I would say that in terms of modern philanthropy, uh, we could go back to 1867 or so, and you'd have the Peabody um, Education Fund. But it was, um, it was not open-ended in the way that a lot of the modern foundations are, in which they have, um, they, they don't say, you know, that when, when the foundation is created, the charter doesn't say that we're going to do this specific thing. It's very open-ended. It's for the betterment of humanity, like generally speaking. So the Peabody um, Fund was more um, dedicated to education. Then you have the General Education Board in 1902, again, dedicated to education, agricultural reform, and so on, specifically in the American South. And then you have um, the big foundations, the general purpose funds. The first one, I think, is 1906 or 1907 is the Russell Sage Foundation, which still exists. And then we have um, in 1911, I believe, the Carnegie Corporation, which is also a New York City foundation. And then you have the Rockefeller Foundation in 1913. And then eventually in 1936, you have the Ford Foundation. So those are um, some of the early foundations, the bigger ones. And they were all based in New York, weren't they? Yes. The Ford Foundation was created in Michigan, um, but it eventually moved to New York City in the 1950s. Actually, as a guest on my show a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had one of the owners of the bakery in uh, in Belmont in the Bronx, and one of his past uh, positions was the chief operating officer of the Ford Foundation in New York. Oh, wow. What was it about New York that had it become the center from which some of these nationally, even global philanthropic institutions operated? Yeah. Um, so I would say that one of the reasons is that a lot of the big fortunes, the, the wealth that was being accumulated um, during the Gilded Age, right, that eventually led to the creation of these foundations. This this was happening um, in various parts of the U.S., but primarily centered in New York City. And so you have figures like John D. Rockefeller Sr., who's the founder, one of the founders of Standard Oil and Gas, and then eventually the founder of the Rockefeller Foundation, his business empire is basically based in New York City, even though it's international and global, but it's based in New York City. And then you have Andrew Carnegie, who eventually moves to New York City, right? So you have all of these figures that are based in the city. New York is sort of becoming a a global center, um, and it becomes a sort of logical place where um, the foundations spring up. And it is still... um, a major center for philanthropy. When did foundations that have been committed to the well-being of New York and New Yorkers become active in the city? Um, I mean, I think if we broaden out from just the sort of modern foundation, right, like the all-purpose foundation, 
we can think about um, philanthropic institutions going um, way back in time. And so you can also, for example, think about um, the St. George Society that was created in, um, I believe, the 17, I believe it was 1770 or sometime in the late 1700s. And it was a society that was meant to help or to um, assist colonizers, right, sort of um, who had fallen in hard times. So that's kind of an, an early philanthropy. Um, and then you have, you know, other um, institutions that you have, um, I would say, you can think about institutions like um, the Cooper Union, which is not a foundation, right, but it is a, it is created as part of a philanthropic act. And so you have the Cooper Union, you have Pratt Institute, um, the things like the Henry Street Settlement. So these are local um, institutions that are created from the act of philanthropy. Were there philanthropic programs, Azra, initiated in New York by non-New York actors, by people who weren't from the city, but 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 wanted to to create good works here? Um, yeah, I would... I don't, I would say I don't know enough about that, but I can tell you that in recent years, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is actually um, a big, um, it, it, it undertakes a lot of philanthropic work in New York City. So, for example, giving a lot of money to the Department of Education and to various programs at NYU. So, I would say um, I'm not sure at the turn of the 20th century, what that was like. But I know that that is the case today. What do you think the motivation was of people who were not from New York or who didn't live here to become interested in philanthropy that affected New Yorkers? Um, I think if you think about some of these foundations, right, so thinking again about the Gates Foundation, um, these are foundations that, or philanthropists that are not... Um, these are not local foundations, so they're not looking at their own sort of immediate area of operation, but they are looking at, um, they're interested in issues of education or of health or of the arts that are more global in nature. So um, from that perspective, you can, you can probably understand why you have non-New Yorkers interested in spending in philanthropic projects in New York City. Well, let's go to uh, speaking about some of the specific foundations and their work here in the city. Um, which are some of those that you think are the most notable for the work that they do in the city? Um, in terms of sort of local spending? Yes, yes. I would say that um, I'm just trying to think about this a little bit because I'm more focused on the global philanthropy that comes out of New York City. Mm. Um, but there is the New York um, Community Trust, if I'm getting the name right. The St. George Society is still operating here. Um, some of the kind of earliest institutions are still operating within New York City. Um Organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation, which are based in New York City, actually spend most of their money outside the city. So it's a, it's an interesting thing that some of these kind of more global foundations, the ones that I generally tend to focus on in my work, they're based in the city, but the money is essentially going out. Well, the one that we have in, in New York and that most people would recognize is Lincoln Center which was partly uh, created as a, uh, as a result of the work of John D. Rockefeller III, uh, John Sr.'s grandson, mm -hmm. as well as Robert Moses and some, and, and some other folks, too. Yeah, I thought you were asking specifically about um, like general purpose foundations. But yeah, the Lincoln Center is one project that emerges out of philanthropy. Um, and then you can also think about things like public-private partnerships. So you have the Central Park Conservancy is a big one. Um, and we can talk a little bit about that because that's a very interesting partnership. Well, let's talk about the Central Park Conservancy. Who doesn't yeah. know Central Park? So, yeah. So it comes about, um, it's created in 1980. Um, and it's sort of one of the first public-private partnerships of this kind in New York City. And it's um, started by people who live around Central Park. So people who live in that 
general vicinity. And what they do is they're trying to um, raise money and to partner with the city in restoring the park in 1980, right? Because the park is sort of in, in um, has deteriorated over the years and they're working on a restoration project with the park and they're thinking about how best to manage it going forward. So they partner with the city and create this public-private partnership and they still administer and run the park today. Um, but the interesting thing about the Central Park Conservancy is that it becomes this model for other projects and other such partnerships in New York City and elsewhere. So you can also think about the Friends of, um, you can think about the Highline Project, which emerges from a very similar public-private partnership. Um, and while, uh, and there's obviously the sort of, the pros of such a, what the people that are giving money Right. So what they're gaining out of it. So, for example, um, Central Park results in, um, you know, the real estate value of all the property that is surrounding Central Park is pretty, is at a high, is at a premium. And that's because of the park views. So you can sort of see how the public-private partnership is helping the city, but it's also benefiting um, private individuals in some ways. Mm. What are some of the other projects in New York that John D. Rockefeller Jr. was involved in? He was involved in um, in many projects um, that were, some of them had a sociocultural impact, some of them had a huge impact in the built environment. Um, and there was a lot of um, scientific research, a lot of medical research that's going on. So we generally, um, it, you know, John D. Rockefeller Sr., for example, started the Rockefeller Foundation, but it's really junior that really leads it in its early years and for a long time afterwards. Um, in terms of the built environment, by which I mean architecture and parks and urban space, we can think about Fort Tryon Park and the cloisters in Upper Manhattan. And if you're in the park and you look across the, the water, you see the Palisades, right? So that's another Rockefeller project, the preservation of that. Um, and then when you come to mornings, when you come further down to Morningside Heights, there's the International Student House near Columbia University, the park across from it, and then Riverside Church. And those, I, I, I tend to think of the three as a unit, right? Um, and then um, the Rockefeller Center is a for-profit project. But interestingly, when it was being constructed, it was presented as this kind of philanthropic gesture towards the city during the Great Depression, um, and there is the land that was gifted for the United Nations headquarters on the east side of Manhattan. Um, and there is part of the land on which the current Museum of Modern Art sits is also a Rockefeller gift. Oh, that's right. I think John D. Sr.'s uh, uh, um, mansion and his and some of his own personal property was on those blocks. It was on mm -hmm. that block. Yes. Yeah. Asra, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you something about uh, philanthropy moving forward and the new Gilded Age that we have right now. The Gilded Age of more than a century ago helped give birth to modern philanthropy. How do you think our new Gilded Age or new Gilded-ish age today is going to impact philanthropy and specifically in New York? Yeah, and so the new Gilded Age, right, and the original Gilded Age, they're both marked by... Um, a great amount of wealth disparity, right? And the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a limited number of people and foundations. And um, similarly to the old Gilded Age, this wealth has resulted in, you know, this new crop of foundations. So if in 1930, for every foundation that existed in 1930, you now have several hundred, right? So that's the kind of number of foundations that you have. So the impact has been um, quite huge in terms of the amount of private money that is going into um, foundations. Um, I would say that, you know, there is, we can talk about the impact on New York City, but I think it's also important, um, I know we're running out of time, but I think it's also important to think about um, the underside of philanthropy, if you put it that way, right? So thinking about um, where, one of the critiques that was present in the old Gilded Age is also a critique today of the philanthropy that emerges from all of this money. So, you know, of course, there are great art and cultural 
and medical advances being made. But we also have to consider, so where is all of this excess money coming from and how was it made in the first place? Um, and so I think that the critique of the old and new Gilded Age and the philanthropy that emerges from it is very important as well. Well, that's a large topic, probably for another show. Uh, Azra Dowd, thank you so much for being our first guest on this show, which I'm calling Philanthropy New York Style. Our first guest has been Azra Dowd. Azra holds the Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Curatorial Fellowship at the Museum of the City of New York. Uh, Azra, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be speaking with a business leader in New York who also is involved in the leadership of a number of notable foundations, Kenneth Fisher. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. You know you have it. The potential for a more rewarding life, a life that matters. But how do you get there? The answer is in a best-selling book by the coach of the successful and wealthy, Ken D. Foster. The Courage to Change Everything, Daily Strategies and Wisdom to Awaken Your Hidden Genius and Transform Your Life. With this powerful yet amazingly simple daily guide, your future is in your hands. You will be empowered to unlock your potential, bring out your true gifts, increase your wealth, and take your life and business to a new level. Get your life-transforming copy of Ken D. Foster's The Courage to Change Everything by going to couragetochange.us. That's couragetochange.us. Quite frankly, there's no other book like this. Imagine what your life could be like if you had at your fingertips the success principles to create the life you've always wanted. Are you ready to live your dream? Go to couragetochange.us. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Support from Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. If you have comments or questions or would like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, we have a great second guest on this program about philanthropy New York style. That's Kenneth Fisher. Kenneth is a business leader and philanthropist. As co-managing partner of Fisher Brothers, he's part of the third generation leadership team of one of the country's most successful family-owned real estate development and management companies. Ken was an executive committee member of the City Investment Fund, a $770 million initiative established in 1996 to stimulate communities throughout New York City's five boroughs through real estate and investment. Ken previously served as a member of the Real Estate Board of New York 
And among many of the leadership positions, he is the recipient of Rebney's Harry B. Helmsley Distinguished New Yorker Award. Ken is the chairman and CEO of the Fisher House Foundation. Fisher House remains the preeminent public and private partnership serving military families. It works with both the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs. Ken also serves as co-chairman of the Intrepid Museum Foundation and has helped oversee the development of the museum into a unique nonprofit educational institution, which among its many accomplishments, provides award-winning STEM programs to thousands of children in New York City's public school system. In 2007, Ken was appointed by the Bush administration to the President's Commission on Care of America's Returning Wounded Warriors and has served on related policy boards. His other accomplishments and honors are almost too numerous to detail in my introduction this evening. Uh, Ken lives in New York with his wife, Tammy, and is the proud father of three children and one granddaughter. Ken Fisher, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. You're originally from New York. Where did you grow up? The Riverdale section of the Bronx. Um, okay. Back in the 60s. Uh, I was born in 1958. So it's a great place to grow up. Played stickball and all those things that we do in the Bronx. Well, we also played stickball in Brooklyn. So <laughs> I understand a... that, Jeff. I'm not <laughs> saying one was better than the other. Uh well, uh, Sam, the engineer of the show, he's from the Bronx, so I think it's two against one, so I think the Bronx is going to win out. Um, wh- how long has your family been involved in real estate, Ken? You know, Jeff, that's a good question. We, we, we can trace it back almost 100 years. When my great-grandfather came here from Russia, uh, he was a, a stonemason by trade, uh, raised um, four sons and three daughters, uh, Three of those sons went on to form Fisher Brothers, starting out as a bricklaying contractor. And in those days, bricklayers were basically the GCs, and they would call in the trades as necessary. And uh, one day they decided that they were tired of building for others and went into business for themselves. And that was the birth of Fisher Brothers. When did you decide that you would go into the family business? Oh, that's a good question, too. I, you know, I went to Ithaca College. I got out in 1980, and uh, I think at that point, I was anxious to get into the business. So 1980 is when I joined Fisher Brothers. Um, I went through uh, a number of different positions before I got to director of leasing, which is where I settled for about 20 years of my 40-year career. You know, Ken, this is not a show about real estate, but since your philanthropic work is at least partly empowered by your family's real estate business, and since I'm in the industry, I want to ask you, what are some of the major properties that Fisher Brothers owns or operates? Yeah. In New York City, we are we own 299 Park Avenue, which is our headquarter building, where we're, where we're based. 1345 6th Avenue, which just underwent uh, about an $80 million renovation, both interior and exterior. Uh, we, we own 605 Third Avenue, uh, and Park Avenue Plaza. We also joint ventured station place down in DC with Louis Dreyfus. We developed a residential building down there, a lease building, uh, uh, called station place. Uh, and then we have two uh, residential developments here in the city that were are recently built. One was house 39, uh, on 39th street between, uh, second and third and 111 Murray Street, which is a condominium. What is the City Investment Fund, Ken, and how did you become involved with it? The City Investment Fund was designed back in the 90s by my late cousins, Tony and Richard Fisher. And it was designed to pursue uh, opportunities, real estate opportunities within the five boroughs exclusively. Uh, The... uh, we were successful in launching the fund, and the fund was, was successful at, up until 2007 housing bubble. But I got involved uh, with the city investment fund uh, when my cousin Tony passed away in a plane crash back in 2003. And it was a very, very tough time, obviously, for many reasons, uh, because I really had to step into his role uh, both in the city investment fund and in the family business. And I can tell you that those were gigantic shoes to fill. Uh, so the fund was in operation for that time, but it took us out of the real estate development business for five years. 
And there were some opportunities missed to be sure. In the end, the fund, you know, dissolved, but everyone was made whole. And that was probably the, the, uh, the best outcome we could have hoped for. Mm. Well, I want to talk about your engagement with, with philanthropy and good mm-hmm. causes. Your, your giving and your role go beyond charity. It's very different because in the work that you do, you take on the role of being a philanthropist with all the work that's involved, and you don't just give to the causes you believe in. When did you decide that you would take a much more active role in the direction of not-for-profit causes that you were committed to and that you wanted to have a major impact on? Well, it, it goes back to the three brothers. You know, obviously, they never thought that there, that there could be true success without giving back. It strengthens the community, and, and it's part of our responsibility as successful people. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, so it, it, but it, it really began in earnest in the late 70s when it was brought to my Uncle Zachary's attention that the USS Intrepid was going to be scrapped and, and sold as, as scrap metal and after it was decommissioned. And Zach thought that this was a very, very important piece of history. 270 sailors lost their lives on the decks of the Intrepid or in the skies above. And so there were numerous kamikaze attacks. And the Intrepid actually earned the, the, the nickname the ghost ship because it had survived so many hits. And so Zach, working with the Navy uh, and the city of New York, brought the Intrepid into New York in November of 1981, was the final sail, which I was on. And it was a cold day. The ship beat. It was, it was a miserable experience. But Zach smiled from ear to ear. And I never forgot that. And the Intrepid opened in 82. And that began really our, our giving back in the direction of military uh, servicemen, women, veterans, and their families. Uh, out of the Intrepid came Fisher House, uh, which began in 1990. Uh, it, my involvement began uh, just just before Zach passed away. I would, he asked me to go down, and he knew what he was doing. He asked me to go down and open up a house down in San Antonio. And my wife, Tammy, and I went down, and we opened up the house, and I became hooked that day and went back and said, Zach, I want to take a bigger role. And the old story of be careful what you wish for, because I got it. And when Zach passed away in 99, the family had to get together and really decide what we were going to do and how we were going to do it, because the initiatives had become so wide ranging. And Zach was making such an enormous impact on the lives of military and their families that we had to keep it going. So that was my, my foray into philanthropy. I want to uh, talk about the Fisher House Foundation um, after we, we take a break, which we will in a minute. But, but I wanted to ask you, when did you become co-chair of the Intrepid Museum Foundation? 2012, the day the shuttle uh, landed in New York. Ah, and for our listeners who don't know, um, uh, Ken talked about it briefly. The Intrepid uh, saw action during World War II uh, in the Philippines uh, and also in Okinawa. was going to be scrapped. Uh, the, the foundation brought it to New York. Uh, and also, Ken mentioned uh, the uh, is it the Enterprise that's on that's on the Space Shuttle Enterprise, which is near and dear to my heart, Jeff, because I was a Star Trekker. So uh, that was a great day. I'll oh tell wow! You later. <laughs> and also, one of the Concords is on the deck, isn't it? The one that made the fastest transatlantic crossing. They call it Concord Alpha Bravo. It crossed the Atlantic, I believe, in two hours and thirty nine minutes. That was the fastest crossing. Wow. And you can see that all on the decks of the Intrepid, which is on Pier 46 on the Hudson River. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Ken Fisher. And we're going to ask him more about the Fisher House Foundation and his work with a few other foundations as well. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. 
business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. To rediscovering New York. This is our 99th episode, and the topic for today is philanthropy in New York style. My second guest is Kenneth Fisher. Ken is a partner at Fisher Brothers Real Estate in New York, and he is also the chair and co-chair of a number of charitable foundations. Uh, Ken, when was the Fisher House Foundation founded? 1990, Jeff, uh, when it was brought to my uncle's attention that there was a very basic and very underappreciated need that military families had no affordable place to stay when their loved ones were in the hospital. And Zach, being the man he was, mobilized instantly. He said, I'm a developer. I have access to architects. I can build a house. And so uh, Fisher House began with the first four houses, Walter Reed, Bethesda, uh, San Antonio, and Joint Base Lewis McCord up in Washington State. How many Fisher Houses are there now? Today, there's 91 in operation with a couple more coming. Uh, obviously, it's been difficult to, you know, to operate under the, the pandemic, but, uh, but we have one in Huntington, West Virginia that's set to open, one, I believe, in Kansas City. You know, you lose track after a while because they're so expansive. But uh, we built one in Great Britain uh, for our British allies, which was an interesting experience. And we, I think the one that I'm most proud of and I shouldn't say this, but I am, it was the one that we built at Dover for the families of the fallen. Uh, it was a different kind of a house, obviously, but there was no... Oh, yeah, wow. They're not visiting a family who were getting treatment in a hospital. They're being there for the final journey back to the right. United States. Correct. The dignified transfer, as they call it. We built also a spiritual mm -hmm. center because there was no place for families to pray. So that was something mm -hmm. that we were very proud of. We built that in six months then. Wow. You know, speaking about the fallen, um, the Fisher Foundation did something really moving and very important. There was a government shutdown in 2013, and that impacted the families of, of the fallen. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. You know, it was a couple of days into the shutdown when it was discovered that families who are supposed to receive what is known as a death gratuity, it is essentially a payment made within 24 to 36 hours after a loved one's passing to the family uh, of $100,000, and that had slipped through the cracks. And I found out about it like everybody else watching the television. And I became incensed, and I called up the foundation president, and I said, look, I want you to take a chunk of money. I want it segregated, and we're going to pay the death benefits. We'll worry about how we're going to get reimbursed later. Uh, it was Senator Joe Manchin that actually took the proposal to the uh, Pentagon, uh, Secretary Chuck Cagle, gratefully accepted, and the next couple of days were just a blur. Um, we had to be converted into a government contractor so that we could be reimbursed because the government cannot give money by definition to a 501c3. Um, and it was an enormously uh, just, it was it was a combination of, of being enraged and being, and, and feeling a sense of privilege that I could actually do something like this. Because in the end, we actually bailed them out, which was something that, 
you know, was enormously embarrassing for them that a foundation of our size came in and, and the fact that they accepted it uh, was something that was really uh, something, it was an experience I'll never forget. Hmm. Ken, one of the great works that the foundation provides is that you, you make available scholarships. Um, do you want to talk about the nature of those and who's sure. able to access them? Yes. It's, it's open to d- three different kinds of, uh, or three different uh, segments of military family. The first one is the one that we administer with the Defense Commissary Agency, which is essentially the mar- supermarkets on the basis. Um, it's a round up, a round off, um, you know, kind of a contribution. And the um, the vendors actually are the ones that that give us the money, and we administer it for military children. So any child of a card carrying member of the military or veteran can can actually access this program. We also have one for military spouses because it was brought to our attention by the National Military Family Association that family spouses, when their loved ones were deployed, were sitting on a couch at home with their with their fingers dug into couch, wondering what was happening to their loved one. They weren't hearing for any length of time. So we decided to give them the, the access, you know, to go back and, and, and seek education if they wanted it or higher education. That was important. And, and I'm so glad that we were able to do that. The third one was actually, we were aided by, by then President Obama, who wrote a book uh, called The V.I. Sing, which was you know a, a portrait of 13 Americans that he wrote for his daughters and gave us the after-tax profit uh, of that book. So we were able to start a foundation uh, called Legacy Foundation that essentially aids the children of those who have been killed in the line, uh, access, uh, you know, some scholarship so that they can go back to school. And um, we owe that to President Obama. So that was a great thing. Well, I want to ask you about your your role as, as chair of the foundation, Ken. Under your leadership, the Fisher House Foundation has consistently been recognized for its success and its high standards. It's one of the few to hold an A-plus rating from Charity Watch, and it's received a perfect four-star rating from Charity Navigator for 16 years. That's a long time. (laughs) The foundation's also received the Independent Charity Seal of Excellence, and it's part of the combined federal campaign. I mean, these are accomplishments that foundations covet, but that few achieve. I mean, what's your secret? I mean, seriously, what have you brought to the table that has enabled the Fisher House Foundation to garner this kind of recognition? A private sector mindset. Foundations, too many are not held accountable for the way they spend money. And, you know, I said that that would be something that I would not allow happen to Fisher House. So it's beautiful in its simplicity. We don't go in areas we don't belong. We don't waste money that way. We don't promote ourselves. We spend one penny on marketing. And we rely on word of mouth and the media opportunities that we receive, such as during 2013, during the shutdown. You know, I, I felt like I was the poster boy for Fox for, for a week, but but I really did a lot of media. And and because of what we do and, and the success that Fisher House you know has, it's given me some opportunities to use the, the media platform and we've used it effectively. And so, you know, we have been able to reach places that, you know, 20 years ago, I never thought possible. So we've been able to increase our services, all family related. So we're not in places we don't belong. Uh, we're not going to be all things to all people. But I used to say we run it like a like a public company that didn't need to be bailed out. Um it's we treat the donors as shareholders and their dividends are the houses and the people that they help and the services we provide. And that's worked for for the 20 years that I've been chairman. And I would imagine it will keep working as long as Fisher House will be in existence. Wow. Well, Ken, time on the show goes by really fast, even though we I think we have time for substantive interviews. We have about a minute left. I want to ask you what the Jackie Robinson Foundation is and how you became involved with it. Uh, Jackie Robinson Foundation obviously was set up uh, by Rachel, um, is just a magnificent human being. Um, it is for, you know, uh, the um, 
children of minorities to be able to access scholarship money to go to school. And they've made an enormous impact. I've met some incredible people, Rachel being one of them. And that's one of the, you know, I don't serve on many other boards anymore um, because the Fisher, uh, the Fisher philanthropies have, have taken so much of my time, but that's one that I'll never, I'll never step down. Mm. All right. Well, Ken Fisher, thank you so much for joining us on this special show about philanthropy in New York style. My second guest has been Ken Fisher. Ken is a partner at Fisher Brothers Real Estate and uh, is chair and involved with more nonprofits than I could possibly mention. The principal ones are the Fisher House Foundation, as well as the Intrepid Museum Foundation. Ken, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Jeff. If you have comments or questions about the show, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent in Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you could reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Sturrier. Our engineer is Sam Liebowitz, who, like Ken Fisher, is from the Bronx. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. at www.talkradio.nyc now broadcasting 24 hours a day hi i'm graham dobbin join me every thursday evening for the mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc we speak to people from business sport military politics all around what makes a great leader the personal experiences of what's worked and maybe more importantly what hasn't worked. So that's seven o'clock every Thursday evening. The mind behind leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.